The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. All right, so hey, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and we're in, in chapter 13. And Pastor Kevin last week had a, a pretty big, let's say, section that he was working through. But the main emphasis was on freedom, right? He's, Jesus set a woman free who had been oppressed by a, a demonic spirit. And if you remember correctly, there were some religious leaders who were not very happy about that. They were thinking they were free, but they were actually enslaved to religion. And, and so Jesus comes in, and, and he's showing Israel. If you think about the context of, context of chapter 13, he's, he's showing them their hard heart. He's showing them that they're unwilling to repent. He's showing them all these things in hopes that they would turn from their sin and from their ways. And that's where we pick it up. And, and it appears that they're paying attention. So look at verses 22 and a little bit of 23. So as Jesus went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, right? So he's headed to the cross. He knows that. That's his mission. That's why he's come. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? That's a good question. It appears that they're paying attention to his parables, right? If you remember correctly, he was talking about the mustard seed and how it would grow into a tree where all these birds would have a place and a home to come and to nest. And then he's talking about a few measures of dough. But, but those things are actually, they start small and they grow. And, and they're, they're trying to figure out how many people then, right? They're trying to figure out the parable. See, the, the time left for unfruitful Israel to repent is really drawing near. Uh, Jesus is about to go to the cross, and so they ask, will those who are saved be few? Well, like most things, Jesus never gives us the straight answer that we would love, and so he tells them, essentially, another parable. And look what he says to them. Look at verses 23 through 27. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil." I laughed because they're like, so we're going to have a, we're going to have a big kingdom. We have a small kingdom. He's like, let me tell you a story, right? He doesn't answer the question directly, which is almost always true, but he gives these two illustrations to talk about salvation and how sobering this, this conversation is to his crowd. First, he says in verse 24, he says, you must strive to enter through this narrow door, right? Jesus alone is this door. There is no way into heaven apart going through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not only did he declare that he had come down from heaven, but he's also saying he's the only way into heaven or into God's presence. That he's the only way. And I got to tell you, we live in a world where there's many religious uh, people and spiritual leaders who claim to to essentially be able to point you towards many paths or many doors, but no one ever had claimed to be the door, 
No one had ever claimed to be the way. They were all pointing towards different ways. Jesus does not do that. In contrast, he actually promised that he was the way and the only way to eternal life. He said this clearly in John 14, 6, and he said it, he's saying it clearly here. He says it clearly all throughout the scriptures. But in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Listen to these words. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a very exclusive claim. He's not saying there are many paths to God. He's saying there's one path to God, and I'm that path. You cannot get to the Father except through me. And I've got to tell you, this rubs hard against our very enlightened and inclusive world, which, which really promotes a very aggressive pluralism, right? Um, and, and this pluralism tolerates everything except the very narrow gospel, right? And so it, it would be fine if Jesus is just one of many teachers. We would be fine with that. But when he starts to make claims like this, many times people are like, oh, I just can't get down with that. I just can't get down with that. And so sadly in our day, even pastors and Christian leaders many times lack the courage to simply say what Jesus has said clearly. Um, and and for, here's one instance. Here's one example. There was a female bishop uh, for an Episcopalian church who was asked by Time magazine this very clear question. Is belief in Jesus the only way to get to heaven? That's a, that's a simple question. And, and hopefully a pastor or a priest or someone who just knows the Bible would be able to clearly say with compassion truly what is stated in the Bible. Sadly, instead of using this opportunity to let Jesus speak for himself, she instead contradicted Jesus. And here's what she said. We who practice the Christian tradition understand him, Jesus, as our vehicle to the divine. But for us to assume that God could not act in other ways is, I think, to put God in an awfully small box. Not helpful. Not helpful. Think about it. If there was a disease running rampant throughout all the world and we had a table that had 100 syringes on it and there was only one syringe that actually could save and cure the disease, it's not cruel to say this is the only one that can help you. It's actually kind. It's very helpful. It wouldn't be kind to say, just use whatever one you want, and we'll hope it works out for you. Um, but that's what people do. We should never shy away from clearly communicating what the Bible clearly communicates. And Jesus is very clear here. right? Contrary to the, the common religious pluralism of our day, which likes to imagine that many religions of the world re represent the different but the same God, and we can all just worship whatever and end up in heaven. Jesus here is teaching very clearly he is the only way to salvation. The only way to salvation is through a proper response to his teaching, and that is repentance and faith. It's turning from our old way of living, which was all about us, and trusting in Jesus Christ, who is the one who has come to give us life and give us life abundantly. He's being very clear about that. It's a narrow door, he says. It's a very narrow door, not one that a person would just accidentally stumble through. No, he says strive. Notice in verse 25, he says, not only is salvation narrow, but, but the door one day will be closed. It will be permanently shut. It will be cut off, and it will cut off anyone who's not already inside. You see what he's saying? The opportunity to respond, he's saying, Israel, it, it's, it's fleeting. It's fleeting for you. 
because I'm about to go to the cross and I'm about to go to the grave and I will be resurrecting. Now the beauty is, after the resurrection, many of Israel repented and trusted in Jesus for their salvation. But they're looking at the Messiah right in the face right now and they don't like the Messiah they have. They instead wanted a king who would come and triumph and take over Rome and and be the king they always longed for. And he is, but they cannot see him clearly. And so he continues to, to really confound their thinking. He continues to speak to them. There will come a day when, when it's too late. There will come a day where we'll no longer have the opportunity to respond in repentance and faith. When will that day be? When Christ returns or when you die? And you should just never presume upon God's grace and think you're going to live a long life. You might, but, 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 and I don't say this to scare you, but it's just the reality. You're, you're, you're one breath away from, from meeting Jesus face to face right now. You could die on the way home. You could have a heart attack right here, right now. No one likes to think like that, but Jesus is saying, think like that. Just don't assume. Like, I remember as a young guy, I wasn't a saved man. At 23, the Lord saved me. Prior to that, I kept thinking, yeah, one day when I'm done doing all the things I want to do, that's when I'll get serious about Jesus. And I remember being hit by a car and breaking 18 bones and thinking, I'm so thankful that the Lord did not let me die on this day. And about a year later is when he called me to faith. And it's when I responded. But, but don't miss the point of this text. And here's, I got one point for this sermon. The narrow door of salvation is wide open to all, but not forever. So I think a lot of times we miss this. See, Jesus does not force his hearers to venture a guess about this proper response. He's been talking about it all throughout his ministry. Strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, meaning after it's closed and they won't be able. A lot of people will teach this and they'll say they're striving to enter and it's open and they can't fit. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, come through now. It's wide open. It's wide open. If you hear his voice, if you hear the the call to repent of your sin, to believe in Jesus Christ, enter in. Enter in by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But there's coming a day when it will be too late and you will not be able to enter. Jesus' words are essentially assaulting their complacency. They're, they're, They're insulting their lackadaisical approach towards trying to figure out Messiah. They think they're fine. Israel thinks they're fine. Why? Because they're God's chosen people. They're the Jewish people. Of course, Messiah is here for us. But, but he's saying, oh, I don't know if you're understanding all of this. You're not just born into this kingdom. You must be born again. So as he paints this picture of a household, they, notice it says addressed as Lord. This desperate people seek to enter, but notice it's after the time of salvation being passed. Simply put, many Jews in in Jesus' day felt an arrogant pride that they were already in. And he's saying, I don't think you're understanding what I'm saying. They thought they were already a part of this covenant community, and and they had lots of, it led them to be very foolish about salvation. And this is why they were so frustrated that Jesus was saying, come on in to the Gentiles. He was saying, come on in to those lepers and all these different people. And they could not understand why this Messiah wasn't matching up with the one they understood as they read their Bible. But look, he continues in verses 25 through 27. He says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, 
And you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, notice their language, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. It's a very Hebrew thing to say. And it's important we read the Bible through that lens, right? Jesus came for the Jews first. Absolutely. But he also came to bring in the Gentiles. And they're, they're saying, let us in. And it's already too late. And he said, I don't know who you are. Well, of course you do, right? And they, they start to think about their lineage. And then they say this. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. I mean, Jesus is stinging point in all of this is that salvation has much more to do with their heritage. And it has much more to do with their intellectual familiarity with Christ. Meaning, well, we've hung out with you. We've been a part of the crowds. Jesus is saying, nope, you're not my disciples. I don't know you. Well, we know you. We hung out. You were teaching and we, we broke some bread. Yeah, we might have hung out, but you did not know me. You did not trust me. How do you know that you've trusted and know Jesus Christ? He's saying, because you will turn from your old life and you will trust me who is life. You'll go where I'm going. And they're saying, well, we'll go there if you'll be what we want you to be. And he's saying, I won't be what you want me to be. I will be who I am, period. Well, we don't want that one. Then you just don't get in. Why? Because this is a narrow gate. It's a narrow door. You want to make a Messiah in your own image. And he's saying, I won't do it. That's the point he's getting at. Make no mistake about it. The same complacency and, and lackadaisical approach and presumptions of salvation has continued to plague the church. Continue to plague the church. So many times we make the mistake of making Jesus in our image. We, my Jesus would never say that. I don't care what your Jesus would say. And I'm not even trying to be real. I'm just saying Jesus has spoken for himself. We come to the Word of God and we let the Word of God have its way with us, right? The Word of God reads you as you read the Word of God. And when we start to change the Word of God, well, Jesus would never do that. Well, but what do you do with this? It's very clear that he, has, he not only would do that, he did do that. Well, yeah, but I don't like that. And so we start to become an a la carte Christian. And we start to say, well, I'm just going to take the pieces I like. At least Benjamin Franklin was very sincere in his. He would just cut out the pages of the Bible he didn't like. And he had his own Bible. And we laugh at that. But can I just tell you right now? We do that. We just leave our Bible intact. And we say, that's not for me. That must be for somebody else. I got to tell you, there, there are so many people... Nominal professing Christians, churchgoers, church viewers, online and de church today that come to Christ and they will not deal with his, his exclusive claims. And they'll just say, I'm, I'm not going through that narrow door. And he's saying, that's the only way. Now I'll find another way around. No, you won't. Why? Because there's not one. He says, many will seek to enter and not be able. Remember, this all comes from the question, Will the kingdom be large? Will there be a lot of people in this kingdom or will there be few? And he doesn't answer. And, and by the way, 
when you start to hear that many will seek to enter and not be able, many times this is almost always when the false gospel of guilt starts to enter into the conversation. Can you feel it? I, if I was in your seat, I could feel it. This is when the preacher starts going, better stop listening to, to rock and roll music and your PG-13 movies and make sure that your clothing is appropriate. All these different things. Why? Because we want to make sure you go through the narrow gate, brother and sister. It's not at all what he's saying. By the way, skin-tight clothes would help you fit through the narrow gate. That's just silliness. It's just, uh, Gabe, you're so out of control today. I love you. See, the, the false gospel of guilt gets spooled up here because it's easy to control people who are fearful. It really is. But can I just tell you, guilt makes nobody love Jesus. Only grace will do that. It's the grace of God that you love Christ. If you've ever loved Christ, you didn't do that. The Holy Spirit of God had, has done a work in your heart, right? Now, I'm not saying we don't cooperate with the work that the Spirit's doing, but, but spiritually dead people aren't like, ooh, yay, Jesus, ever. Not in a real way, not in a sincere way. However, Jesus does not want to inject false fears into our heart and our mind with this conversation. What he does want us to do is examine our lives. He, he does want us to make sure that we're going to come safely home through the narrow door. So we shouldn't take the heat out of the kitchen, but we should let it be appropriate in what it is. The command is, listen, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now listen, the Greek verb, and before anybody's like, oh, he's smart. I'm really not. I don't even know Greek. I know people who know Greek, and I know how to read what they have written, okay? <laughs> but the Greek verb that Luke is choosing to use is agonizomai, right? That's a fun word. It's where we get our word agonize from, okay? Why does that matter? Because it has its roots in it like an athletic competition. So think of a, a, a runner, Think of a wrestler. Think of uh, any kind of athlete that's agonizing towards the goal. Uh, the goal of winning, the goal of crossing the finish line. But it, but it has an intense exertion towards that goal. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. And that may sound strange to you. But what is Jesus essentially saying here? Essentially he's saying to give every ounce of effort that you have. Not half-heartedly, but in agonizing pain to squeeze through this narrow door. What does that mean, though? Right? Because when we hear like agonize and, and, and striving, a lot of times the problem is people will hear that and they'll wrongly assume this means that we must work to get to heaven. Right? That's what a lot of people hear when they hear the word agonize or strive. I must work very hard to get through this narrow door. But we should not misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying the strive to add up a bunch of good works so that you can fit through this narrow door. It's absolutely not what he's saying. He's not saying, make sure that you, that you pray enough, that your church attendance is up, that your moral purity is for all and everyone to see, that you feed enough of the homeless. By the way, all those things are good things, but none of those things are what will get you, quote unquote, through the narrow door. But that's how it's almost always preached and taught and butchered in a gospel guilt church. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the point is, is to labor hard at listening to the Word of God and responding appropriately to the Word of God. And what is His Word? It's a message of grace. 
It's a message of grace. What's he saying? The door's not big enough for your Instagram photos of your good deeds. Right? If you, by the way, if you want to post on Instagram, I'm all good with that. I'm not saying that's bad. What I'm saying is if you think by you posting, you doing good things out in the world and you know, telling the homeless person, say cheese while you take a selfie so that you can be like, God will be impressed with me or my friends will be impressed with me. He's saying it actually doesn't help. It doesn't help. Why? Because you're leaning on you. It's, the door's not big enough for your self-righteousness. The door's not big enough for your earthly riches. The door's not big enough for all your sin. Thankfully, Jesus has come to take away our sin. The door's not big enough for your puffed up head and religiosity to fit through. He's saying there's one way. And he's saying, I'm that way. You, you, essentially, we enter heaven much like we enter into this world, right? Small and naked. I don't even mean to be funny there. I'm just saying, I got nothing but Christ and Christ alone. That's the message. That's the posture. That's the narrow gate. Oh, I want to add my church. No, won't fit. Won't fit. Israel wants to add all these different things. Won't fit. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. You want to know what it looks like to actually grow in grace? You get smaller and smaller and smaller. The fruit of the Spirit is is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But can I tell you that all of that, it's, it's fruit, not fruits, right? It's fruit, but it's humility. And can I just tell you right now, humility is not of your nature. It's not of my nature. That is otherworldly. And so to say, I got no hope except Christ died to save this sinner, that's the narrow gate. That's the narrow gate. And, and the Apostle Paul would come to understand this. See, look at Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says this. It's very similar. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life. And those who find it are few. The question becomes, why is it so hard? He says the narrow's gate, it's hard that leads to life. And I think the reason it's so difficult is because learning to not depend upon you or me or my good deeds is so contrary to, to who we are. We just so desperately want to add things to the gospel. It's, it's Jesus, sure, and. Anytime you add that and, whatever you're about to say, it just works. And Jesus is saying, no, it's, it's me. It's trusting in me. I've made the way. You cannot get to my Father except through me. And very few people are willing to get low and assume this humble position and shed whatever it takes to go through this narrow gate. One writer said this, we're not saved by our effort, but listen, we shall not believe without effort. That's why it's called the good fight of faith. It's a, it's a struggle. It's a struggle, right? Now, who does that work? Well, he does that work in you, but we cooperate. We come to the Word of God. We respond to the work of the Spirit. We, we do this heavy lifting of, of laying down everything at the cross and leaving it there and grabbing hold of him. 
This is what it looks like. This is why we must labor at listening and responding to Jesus' message of grace. This message, by the way, is very shocking and insulting to our pride. Why? Because he's saying, this is what it took to save you, meaning my life, my death, my resurrection. And, And so anytime you start to feel really proud about all your achievements, he's saying, you should look at the cross. You should picture me there, beaten, bloody, scorned, naked, nailed, dying. Why? Because that's what it took to save you. And there's just no room for pride in that moment. There's only room for thankfulness and humility and, and awe, absolute awe, as you think about this God who, who the only thing we as a sinful people have deserved is God's wrath. But in his kindness and in his mercy, He said, oh, but I have such a much better and more beautiful plan. I will send my son. And what's my, his son, Jesus is on a rescue mission. He has come to seek and to save the lost. And blind Israel at that moment, the majority of them anyway, could not see that they were lost. They thought they were in. And he's saying, you're not in. Yeah, but we heard you teach, but you've never responded to my teaching. And I think that's the concern for many American churchgoers. We hear messages week after week, and we say, well, he didn't really entertain me. I almost fell asleep. Or we'll say, man, that was really good about learning how to forgive. And we walk around harboring unforgiveness. Oh, love our neighbor. Let's, let's do a study about that. Or you could just make a pie and invite them to your home for dinner. We just, we just don't, we like to think about theology, but your theology, if you're understanding it rightly, will work itself out in your living. You do what you believe. I promise you that. And I'm not saying you do those things in order to be saved, but I'm saying if you're a saved person, God in his kindness will grow you to be smaller and smaller and smaller, and you will be more like Christ. And that process is long. Sometimes it's, it's very quick for someone. That's not the norm. It's not the norm. You take two steps forward, one step back. It's a struggle. It's a fight. And he's saying, well, keep striving. Keep striving to enter that narrow gate. Why? Because this is where life is found. It's where life is found. So he continues. Look at verses 28 through 30. In that place, and, and what he means in that place is outside this door. You've not entered in. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. By the way, this is not pain. Gnashing of teeth in the Old Testament was never a picture of pain. It's, it's anger. It's anger. They're outside the gate. The door's been closed, and they're angry. But the door is wide open. You could have easily come. They didn't want to come unless it was their way. And Jesus is saying, I don't, I don't play that game. So now they're angry. And he says, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this was their heroes, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. This is, you you might not get this if you don't have a really good understanding of, of the Old Testament. By the way, many of you don't because you're very new to faith. I love that, by the way. Just keep sticking around. I think you'll start to gather these things as you walk with God, as you read the Bible, as you engage in your missional community groups. And the Lord loves to continue to teach those who seek him, okay? But this would be a shocking message. He's telling Israel, all your heroes are in and they're enjoying the feast. You, you're not there. 
This would be like someone going in, and they shouldn't do this because we don't actually know that, some big mega church and just saying, you think you're all going to heaven? Many of you are going to end up in hell. Well, who invited this guy? But that's exactly what Jesus is saying to them. You think you're in, you're not in. And this is a problem. And he goes, and people will come from east. Now, this isn't an He's saying people come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. What's he saying? The Gentiles are coming in, but you're not. All throughout Luke, we've seen those who are not, let's say, God's covenant people coming on in, and they're loving it. Why? Because Jesus is healing. He's throwing a party. Oh, we're out of wine. Where's some water? Boom, we got a party going on now. And they're like, we like this guy. And everyone else is saying, I don't like him. He's healing on the Sabbath. Bad boy, bad boy. What you going to do? I couldn't even help myself. It's hot in here. I got to help you stay awake. Some of you are dozing. All right, so listen. He's like, we're not playing that game. But come in. He wants them to come in. Wait till we get to Luke 15. When you got the prodigal son, he's coming home and he's coming up with a plan so that he can go to the dad and say, oh, just make me one of your slaves. And the dad runs to him and embraces him and loves him. And he says, my son is here. Let's party. And the older brother stays out in the field disgruntled. I ain't coming into your party. Why? Because you're offending to me and Jesus is offending them here. I promise you, why is he doing it, though, to provoke them to come through the narrow door? He loves them. Oh, don't ever make the mistake of thinking God does not love his people. He does. So Jesus seeks to undermine their self-confidence. And he does that by pointing to Isaiah 25. The language is very clear in that text. He's pointing to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 is a beautiful picture when God's people would celebrate God's conquest of death and join in this celebration in this ultimate coming kingdom. So I'm going to read from Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. And just get the language here. Just get the picture. Because this is what they're thinking of as he talks about Jacob and all these. They're thinking about that day. When the kingdom comes on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that has cast over all peoples, meaning death, the veil that has spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away all their tears from all their faces, and the reproach of the people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And and here's the thing. Jesus is in their midst, and they're not rejoicing in him. They're going to kill him. Spoiler alert for anyone who doesn't know how this thing ends, right? They're going to literally kill him, right? Jesus, in a crazy turn of events, is essentially saying that don't assume that you're on the guest list because you're Hebrew. You're not on that guest list until you receive this invitation. What's it look like to receive it? Repentance and faith. Jesus never meets our expectations of who we want him to be, and he's not meeting theirs. See, there's a surprise inclusion that they should have been able to see. Who's that? This is the God of everyone, not just Israel. 
And there's a, there's a very surprised exclusion when he's saying, you might not be on that list. He wants them on the list, but they're unwilling. He says the first will be last and the last will be first. Meaning insiders, let's say the Jews, you're last. Outsiders, Gentiles, you're first. You're coming in first. Why? To provoke Israel in. Oh, God is so kind. Which just goes to show we should, we should trust him when this seems like, this does not seem like the plan. This does not seem like this is the way to go. In those moments, man, we just, God, help us to open our hands and say, I, I can trust that you're at work here and that you see far beyond my very narrow thinking. I can trust you. Why? Because you're trustworthy. All throughout the ages, every promise you've made, you have either kept or you will keep in the future. They will all come true. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. He can be trusted. So, so the people of God, listen, are not those who are born of a certain nation, but rather those who receive Jesus with faith. This narrow door, this teaching that Jesus is getting at, this good news of salvation for all people, Jew and Gentile, it, everyone who is saved is, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. There's just no other way. That is the narrowness of the message. And I, and I want to show you, and I'm going to spend the rest of our time, we're almost done, with, with looking at a very long text. I don't generally do this, but you're going to hear the Apostle Paul basically talk about his experience of entering in through the narrow gate. So look with me at Philippians 3. We're going to look at 2 through 14. I'm going to read. I'm going to give a little thought on it, but then we're just going to finish out there because what he's saying is only those who are in relationship with Jesus Christ, bless you, bless the rest of you. Everybody was like, bless you. Only those who are trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation enter the narrow gate. And listen to the Apostle Paul, by the way, who, if you don't know much about this man, there's no doubt if he was in the crowd when Jesus was teaching, he was on the outside looking in at that moment. He was the one who was very frustrated, the fact that God was doing this work through Jesus so much so that prior to his conversion, he was authorizing the killing of Christians. And now this, this murderous man has come to salvation because Jesus met him on the Damascus road and, and essentially blinded him so he could eventually see. All right. And he goes and he sees. And now Jesus tells him, you're going to be an instrument of salvation to bring the gospel to all the world. And here's what's amazing. He would have been an expert on bringing the good news of Jesus to Jews. Instead, he sent him to his enemies, the Gentiles, and he gave his life to do that thing. And I want you to hear his, his words. So he's writing to the church in Philippi, and he says this. He says, look out for the dogs. He doesn't mean puppies. He means false teachers. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's a strange language. What he's saying is people who are trusting in Jesus and the law. That's what he's saying. Those who add on to the gospel, right? Watch out for them. False teachers who, who want to add that human works and faith alone in Jesus Christ is what you need for salvation. He's saying, look out for them. They're not your friends. But he says this, for, for we are the circumcision, meaning the, the true believer, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying those who are 
in awe of Christ, trusting in Jesus, not trusting in anything we've done. We are the true circumcision. We're the true believer. We're true Israel, okay? And he goes on. He says, but in case you're wondering if we should be worried about, you know, our works, I, he goes, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He, he's saying, if we're grading on a scale, I'm, I'm a super Christian. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I mean, my Hebrew is pretty awesome. My Saturday attendance, pretty good. He's saying, but I don't put any confidence in that. And look what he says as he continues. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, he goes, I have more. I'm way more righteous than you. That's what he's saying. If righteousness came through me working it out. But he's going to go on to tell you it doesn't. Look what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day. That's an impressive beginning. Of the people of Israel, impressive nationality. Tribe of Benjamin, impressive lineage. Hebrew of Hebrews, impressive upbringing. To the law, a Pharisee, very impressive standard. Zeal, persecutor of the church, that's very sincere. That's a very impressive sincerity. Righteousness under the law, he says blameless. That's pretty impressive morality. But whatever gain I had, listen, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. What does that mean? Paul left it all at the door. He just left it all at the door. It is no value to him to enter the narrow gate. I count it loss. He's saying, I got all this stuff. I got the Awana patch, right? I've memorized more scripture than any of you, right? I'm leaving it at the door. Why? Because Christ died to save sinners. That's who I am and I need him. Will you say that? Or, or, or do you lean on your own righteousness? You can do that, but all it's going to do is make you proud and eventually you'll fail you. And then when you do, you'll be very despairing. Why? Because you think salvation, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. It's not. Who can carry that weight? Answer, Christ. Christ's perfection. Leave everything else at the door. Leave everything else. And so he continues, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. By the way, the word rubbish, I don't need to go into a big detail, but I just want you to know he's saying self Efforts are just dung. It's poo. However you want to say that. We read rubbish and it's like a little bit of garbage. He's saying it's refuse. It's, it's awful. Whatever you think it is, it's worse than that. He's saying that's what I'm saying. You have not entered the narrow door until you said everything else is just dung. Do you think like that when it comes to the good news of Jesus Christ? Because look what he says, in order, why does he do that? In order that I may gain Christ. He's in Christ. Christ is in him, but he doesn't ever think like that. He's saved and he's being saved and he will be saved. That's how we think about salvation as gospel people. So he continues on, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, why? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on 
to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Think about that. He's saying, I exert this energy. I agonize for this salvation. Why? Because Christ has done it. But his confidence doesn't lead him to be like a jellyfish just in the stream and the current of whatever. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm like a salmon. I'm, I'm swimming to my death. I'm gone against the grain. Why? Because Christ in me compels me to this. Oh, how many times I hear Christians who, who have the power of the living God. If you're in Christ, if you're believing in Jesus for your salvation, you have the power of the Holy Spirit of God. The living God dwells in all who believe, and he gives us power to strive not to get into heaven, but because we're there. I want to know him. I want to know more of him. I want to grow in grace. I want to be a more forgiving, compassionate person. Why? So Jesus will love me? No, because he does. And I've experienced that love. And I want people to experience his love through me for his glory, not my own. It's everything Jesus is getting at right here. And they're, they're too happy with the religion. Oh, how many people are so happy with the religion? Can I just tell you, it's garbage. Trade it in for a different hobby. It's just so miserable. They got the joy, joy, joy so far down in their heart, it's never come to their face. I just don't get it. I do not get it. We should be the happiest people, and I don't mean flipping and yippy-skippy. I'm saying I have a profound hope no matter how bad my day gets. Why? Because I worship a living God, and He is for me, He is in me, He is with me, and He is working out my salvation while I trust Him. Oh, and he loves to do that. And that brings humility. That brings peace. That brings joy. And it brings compassion to people who are on the outside looking in. And you can say, I actually know how to get in. I know how to get in. There's a very narrow door. Well, what do I got to do? Actually, you just got to trust that Jesus did it all. Oh, yeah, but what about this? What about that? Actually, just leave all that at the door and just turn from your old way of life and trust Jesus who is life. Why? Because he didn't come to mess up your life. He come that you might have life. And have it abundantly. So trust him. Will you follow him? Follow me. Come on. I'm in the door. This is the way. This is the way. What way? Jesus. Jesus. Well, it's the kindest thing you could ever do for anyone. Is to show them the way. And Jesus is the way. And he loves to save. He delights to save. He came to save. He's not come to judge the world. The world's judged. You're guilty, in case you were wondering. I came that you might be saved. This is why Jesus came. He will come again, and he will come to judge. But this is a long season of mercy and grace where we just proclaim good news and say, just come on in, come and receive. Receive Jesus, who is king. So he continues, it's the last verse there. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, to, to know Jesus is to step out of religion or irreligion and step into a real relationship with the living God. That's what Christ is calling us to do. We want to, if I were to summarize what Paul said here, Jesus is Lord, everything else is caca. Some people get offended by that. Then you're not reading the Bible. You're not understanding it. If you think my words just offended you, you didn't read or understand what Paul just said. 
And this is good news. Why is it good news? Make no mistake about it. God does not do this believing and striving for us. But he is with us producing that work in us. We don't strive to be saved. We strive because we are saved. You're alive in Christ. Now you can strive. Now you can strain forward towards this call. Growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ involves many different factors, right? It demands that we deny ourselves daily. It demands that we take up our cross. It demands that we follow Jesus Christ. Why? To reach the goal. What is the goal? To, by God's grace, fully understand and know Christ. I know that's an impossible call because for all of eternity we'll never fully understand. But you can know him. He wants to be known. He came to this earth that you might know him and that by God's grace we might be more like him. That's our call. That's our call. And, and, and you want to know, and this is where we'll finish, you want to know if you're becoming more like him? Ask yourself, how loving am I to the people that don't go to my church? <laughs> Better yet, if you have people in your home, how loving am I to them? Because I know they're going to forgive me. So you'll always be the worst person you are with the people you're closest with. Because you feel safe to do that. <laughs> right? How am I? Am I growing in grace? Because you can grow in knowledge and actually it can make you a little bit more mean. But knowledge without the grace of God just puffs up. But I'll tell you what, if you're growing and understanding what Christ has done to save sinners like you and I, you will know by the way you love God and the way you love other people. And they grow together. They grow together. You can't say, I love God this much, but everybody else. You just, you're not understanding the gospel. You're not understanding what he's saying. You'll know by how you're growing in Christ, by how you love those around you. And listen, I don't mean you're going to love them perfectly. You're going to blow it more often than you could ever imagine, I promise you. And when you do, guess what? You're not crushed by that. You confess it and you say, oh God, it's very clear I've not arrived. I'm thankful that you've done it all. Help me. Help me to love. Help me to grow. God, do this work in me as I strive. Just enable me. Oh, then you're reminded he's given you his spirit. He's given you the grace so you continue to strive, knowing, knowing that he's the one giving you the power to do so. This is the good news, family. This is exactly what he's teaching. It's all by grace that we strive, even your striving's grace. And he loves to empower it for his glory, for your good, and for the good of those around you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that many of the friends here have, have entered this door of salvation. It's wider than we would ever have thought um, because it, it's, it's so open right now. And you're calling people to come and to believe and trust in you. Not our good works, not, not our history or lineage of, of our parents loving Jesus, but you've called us to come and to believe, and to have a relationship with you by faith alone. And that faith is effectual. It makes us men and women new from the inside out, and it's all a work of grace. And you're so committed to completing this work. Father, I pray that you continue to work in us and through us for your namesake. Lord, help us to decrease. Lord Jesus, increase in our lives. 
Lord, we, we ask for much grace to be a people who engage the people around us in this city to teach them, to tell them of the good news of Jesus Christ, that there's a God in the heavens who knows them, who loves them, who has come to save them, that they might have life. Lord, help us to be a humble, happy people who point everything back to you. We ask this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.